0: One-Track Run Talk podcast. Bringing the forefront of science and elite
1: sport to you. Hi, and welcome to the One-Track Run Talk podcast. My name is Fletch. I'm the host here today, one of the coaches at One-Track. And today's guest is Martin Haynes. He is the creator of the Biomechanics Coaching System, chartered physiotherapist, remedial gymnast, and for want of a better word, a bit of a comedian. So, what we're going to try and work on is this idea of why we get injured. How did he come up with a system to measure the intrinsic mechanics, risk elements of exercise for some people, and basically try and get to the root causes of things. So, hopefully you enjoy this. This is Martin Haynes on Why We Get Injured. Welcome, thank you very much for taking your time there, Martin, I really appreciate you uh, dining in for us. But just for those who are listening in right now, can you just give us a little bit of a background into you? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna say my piece for first, but um, you're a massive influence on my sort of career and my standing within the industry and my interest around the whole corrective exercise piece kind of was stirred <laughs> by you in uh, one of your presentations at Loughborough University back in one of the FitPro days, and we had a a conversation around my knee. Uh, I don't know whether you remember it or not, but my knee was messed up and you were like, just whatever you do, don't touch your IT band. And I was like, Eureka, someone's got uh, an understanding of the mechanisms. So when we started to work together, it was a great uh, knowledge builder. Um, but your journey is really interesting because it was kind of started off in a particular way, then got forced into another direction. And then you kind of started to make your own decisions and challenge the current paradigms that were out there at the minute. And that's kind of why I wanted to get you on is how you, where you started, where you kind of ended up and forced into, and then how did you kind of turn it around and create your own thing off the back of that?
0: Yeah, well, first off, thanks for inviting me today. Um, It's great to chat to you and your guys. Uh, And I must admit, you've got to send me a copy of that little intro there because my mother will be proud. (laughs) 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 So um, uh, back in the day, uh, I wanted to be a professional sportsman, um, uh, football or rugby or even athletics, although professional athletics wasn't really a thing back in those days. Um, and realised that very quickly I wasn't gonna be good enough to earn a living out of it. So I kind of figured how am I gonna be involved in sport? That was my original passion. Um, and uh, so I looked at coaching, I looked at all sorts of different things, the S&C, although it wasn't called S&C back in those days. And then I saw this thing called remedial gymnastics. So, uh, so basically that is um, uh, back in the forties, just after the war, and they wanted people who were PTIs in the army, uh, who knew a bit about exercise, but when people came back from the war, they were specific to specific injuries like amputees and so on, which obviously you get in the wars. So um, uh, so that's how remedial gymnastics came around and we started to then specialize. I wasn't around in the forties, just in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but they started to then realize that actually, if we learned about uh, biomechanics, uh, kinesiology, which is kind of the study of movement and so on, we can actually improve our outcomes from these patients. Um, and then uh, the the profession evolved uh, and it got very close to um, physiotherapy which obviously everybody's aware of the gymnasts kind of focused on the exercise the rehab the biomechanics uh, physios tended to specialize more in the clinical side of things uh, in relation to um, um, putting them on ultrasound machines and interference and so on so there was a place for both uh, and then mrs thatcher in her wisdom um, uh, some of your guys might not have heard of her <laughs> we were so close let's just amalgamate and um, so we all became physios um, uh, and uh, and so that's that and that's what we did um so uh, I started working in the NHS um and it drove me insane so I lasted about a year maybe two uh and then um, I was very very fortunate to get an opportunity to work in professional football as a physio uh, a mate of mine was working for Fulham football club at the time and um uh Crystal Palace needed a physio at the time, so he recommended me. Um, I had no clue what I was doing. I'd been qualified five minutes. But obviously, I wanted to get into football. That was kind of why I came into the industry. Um, and uh, I hated that as well, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the, the relationship between, certainly in those days, between the players, the staff, the managers, really wasn't um, what I wanted to be involved with. Um, so uh, So I did that for a while, and then I left and went to Arsenal for a while. Um, and, and just it wasn't me, and it was a real big disappointment because ultimately that's the reason why I came into the business so I could work in professional sport. So then I set up a practice in London, uh, and we started to realize very quickly um, that we, as physios, weren't actually very good to be honest with you. We were ringing people up six months after we discharged them, thinking we'd fix them. Um, this was a private practice, uh, and at least 50% of the patients' their problems had recurred. Um, so we kind of figured we really needed to do something different, we needed to figure out how we can look at the body differently rather than, when I went to college, uh, knee injury treat, knee back injury treat, back. There's a system here, we need to understand better. And this was 25, 30 years ago, and nobody was really thinking like that. So uh, so we kind of um, uh, invested quite heavily in um, fancy robots to measure people better, called ice kinetic machines, lumbar motion monitors. We did, back in the day, crude video analysis, uh, but it was video analysis, to try and understand why people moved in the way that they did. Um, uh, And so we spent quite a bit of time trying to uh, look at that. Uh, We were uh, based in a health club in in West London, and um, we just needed data, we needed people. So we were dragging people in off the street, Uh, the cleaners, we were getting in and testing them, we were just trying to find out how people move normally. Um, And that's kind of how it started, really, the journey. Um, Just being inquisitive, realizing we weren't very good and we needed to improve.
1: That's an amazing journey. I think that's uh, quite a testament to what you've wanted to do is uh, understand how to do it better. It was never about being a physio or or the the piece of paper, it was actually about the helping of the people in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And people will often say, should I go and see a physio or a chiropractor or an osteopath and so on? And is it, actually it doesn't make any difference at all. It's the person and um, find good people and go with good people rather than the qualifications necessarily. Of course they need to have an understanding of the body and need to be qualified to deliver um, uh, treatments to the body, of course, but actually it doesn't matter what the qualification is. It's the person. And, and we've spoken about this many times.
1: Absolutely. So obviously, um, just for a bit of context for people who are listening in and uh, of wider afield who have maybe not come in contact with uh, these kind of approaches before, but you, know, you didn't just work on the cleaners and the, the random gym members and everything else. You had a very high caliber of clientele. As much as it was the everyday person, you also had multiple gold medal Olympic athletes that were also coming in to be measured within the same constraint around working out how they moved.
0: Yeah, we did. And I think, to be perfectly honest, I think it was because we were doing something different. Uh, I don't think it was because it was us particularly. Um, we were these guys in West London who had got all this fancy kit. Um, the fact that uh, my wife nearly divorced me because we had to put the house up as collateral to buy this stuff. We kind of didn't tell her that. Um, but, uh, so I'm sure it's because we had the fancy kit. We were able to provide data, information that was objective that nobody else was able to provide. We're the first uh, people in the Europe, actually, to deliver this type of um, uh, service. Um, so, yeah, I think word of mouth and people sort of gravitate towards, particularly the elite athletes, they tend to gravitate towards new stuff, particularly if it has good outcomes. Um, unfortunately, we're getting quite good outcomes. So, uh, yeah, so we're fortunate to see some elite guys as well as uh, the likes of you and I.
1: <laughs> hey. So I think probably the first question is: What did you find? What what was the sort of moment of um, two? Actually, sorry, two things: the realization that what you thought was true wasn't true. What was that feeling like? And then what was the process, and then finding out the truth?
0: Uh, Yeah, um, yeah, the. uh so i must i must i must apologize in advance i'm still getting over long covid and i've got a massive brain fog oh, so bless you. If, uh, <laughs> if i avoid the question it's not because i'm avoiding the question it's because i've forgotten it um, <laughs> so so basically what we started to do was um, as it was um, at Vogue at the time was measuring how people moved um uh, because that's what you did that was kind of at the forefront of what was going on in sort of 30 odd years ago So we started measuring people. We started to understand what pronation was when the foot flattened. We started to understand a bit about knock knees, hip drops and abnormal arm movement patterns. And we got quite good at looking at that and identifying what was abnormal, what might potentially be causing a problem. So is that hip dropping causing a mechanical load to go from the hip to the knee to the foot? And maybe that's why you're getting the knee and the foot problems. Uh, Or is the flat foot causing problems with your knee and your hip? All this kind of stuff, which is kind of commonplace conversations in this world today. Um, It certainly wasn't 30 years ago. Um, So we started to look at that. We started to say, okay, so if that hip's dropping, um, and you can imagine if you take weight through your right hip, um, uh, the left hip can sometimes drop more than others. Uh, So we kind of, we thought, sensibly figured, well, that's because the muscles of the right hip are weak. If we get those muscles strong, then it'll get better. if our theory is correct that the mechanics of the hip is impacting upon the knee and the foot and that's why you get near foot so um, so we did this for quite some time and we came up with some quite fancy sophisticated ways of getting those muscles stronger um, uh, and we kind of had our ladder up against this tree and we did a really good job at climbing towards the top of it and then one day we got to the top of it and realized our ladder was up against the wrong tree <laughs> uh, so So we kind of realized that we're quite good at trying to give them exercises to try and change their extrinsic mechanics. In other words, how they move. But actually, that didn't change their pain. It didn't really change how they moved. What it did um, was strengthen the areas that we thought were moving abnormally. Uh, And that's quite nice, but actually it didn't help the patients. So we kind of figured that there's more to it than that. the, uh, so we started looking at how we can measure muscle, joint and nerve function. Um, so in other words, uh, do the muscles in your legs have the capacity to do what they're supposed to do? Is the orientation and the mobility of the muscles, of, uh, sorry, the joints of your pelvis uh, working properly? Does your the nerves in your legs, the sciatic nerve, for example, uh, does it have the capacity to do what it's supposed to do? So we started to look at that. So instead of looking at how people were moving, we were looking at why they were moving in that particular way. And we started to find different ways of measuring this and being as objective as we can. And it was actually interesting because we then started to see better outcomes. Right, And we were working on the why rather than the what. Um, uh, We had this chap come in to see us and he was a really well-known marathon runner. Um, And he had this weird arm movement. uh, And he'd been to the great coaches um, to say well you know what am I going to do about this Um, and uh, they coached him to try and improve that technique and they they did all this um, sort of extrinsic stuff as we would describe it Um, and then when we looked at him we didn't look at him other than a cursory yes your arm does do this stupid (laughs) move. we looked at him and we said well actually let's forget that let's just look at you as a biomechanical unit Uh, what's functioning well and what isn't Uh, And we started to notice different areas of him that were working well on which we weren't. Um, And basically what was happening is that on his right side, his right foot was flattening excessively, pronating. His right knee was um, bowing inward slightly. His right hip was dropping. And what that was doing was causing his center of gravity to shift to the other side. So he was having to put his arm out to balance. Otherwise, he'd have fallen over.
1: Right, a counterbalance.
0: Right, exactly. So... um, uh, so when we started to realise this, and then we started, so that was extrinsic, then we looked at the intrinsic, which is, well, why might this be happening? Why might his foot be flattening? And why might his um, hip, be drop, hip be dropping? We then realised that um, his pelvis wasn't functioning correctly. And what was happening is that uh, the muscles in his hip had gone into like a protective spasm to try and um, offload or take the pressure off that um, joint in his pelvis that wasn't working properly. Well. Um, uh, and as a consequence of that it inhibited those muscles and that's why the hip was dropping and that's why there was the, uh, the foot was flattening and so on they're all linked together and that's why his arm was coming out so, um, uh, so basically all we did was stick our elbow in his bum um, uh, improve the function improve how the muscles in his hip worked and then we gave him some exercises to start to strengthen those muscles of his hip um, and uh, this had become a learned pattern of movement by then, it was like an engram. Um, uh, but what that did was give the coaches the opportunity to change this extrinsic pattern. And indeed, within three months, he'd stopped doing that movement pattern. Um, so it was absolutely a combination of um, the extrinsic, understanding mechanically what was going on, the sort of typical video analysis, uh, and then combine that with the intrinsic, mechanically what's going on in each joint and system and, and and muscle and nerve that could be causing those abnormal if abnormal is the right word movement patterns Um so we, we we started to do less looking at how they were moving and we started to spend more time looking at why they were moving in that particular way
1: fascinating uh, i suppose that's the, the the difference between where you were in the nhs and where you were in a private practice was the time for you to be able to think, analyze, sit down, discuss, and trial and error almost.
0: That's exactly what it was. I mean, we—excuse <clears throat> me—we were spending two hours with new patients. Um, I mean, it was my business, so I can spend as long as I want. It's <laughs> fine. Um, so, uh, and we were learning a lot. And after a while, we started to get other therapists and doctors and, and, and so on. And, and coaches, in fact, come in with their patients, their athletes and players and so on, uh, and we brainstorm, And it was just brilliant. We learned so much from these guys. Um, and, and, and what we were learning from cricket, we applied into rugby and football and vice versa. Um, and it was just a big brainstorm. So we probably spent 15 years um, brainstorming with some of the best people in the world. Um, so we're very fortunate
1: amazing uh what what an experience and what a time because it was so innovative and like i said it's 30 years ago some of these things have become household names or uh devices on your phone now you can get things that do similar sort of uh, measurements and stuff but back then it was uh, one a large expense but also two not really known
0: it was a bit of a punt to be honest with you Um, but in some ways, it was very crude as well because when we did the video analysis, because it just fancy video analysis outside of universities didn't exist, so we were just using a crude. Well, it was expensive, but by today's standard, crude video camera, um, and then throwing it up onto a screen and and, and measuring with a protractor. I mean, goodness me, <laughs> it's, it's so crude. But back in the day, that's all there was. Right. Um, but uh, but it gave us enough data. I mean, we went to. Um, um, which university was it? I think it was Liverpool University, uh, up to John Moore and we started to take some of the video analysis up there um, and started to manually digitize this data. So we could look at the velocity of movement, we could look at, um, um, uh, at the ranges of movement and so on. Uh, and it was taking an hour to do one stride. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't got a time to do that. So, uh, uh, so we had to refine the way we did things um, uh, to make it useful. Uh, and still commercially viable um, but ultimately it's about getting what's right for the people so you do what you got to do
1: you, you mentioned something within that about uh the particular athlete's hip and this state the muscle can sort of find itself in or uh be in via the brain's mechanism you mentioned this thing of muscle spasm and that's something that we we've talked about a lot in the past and i know uh it's a question we normally get asked quite a lot is like, what is muscle spasm? Is there a, a clear definition, or is, and how did you first come about this state?
0: Yeah, I suppose um, I was reading through a, a paper by a fellow called Rebo Siskar. I mean, this was um, um, 30 years ago that I read the paper, and, and I think he'd, he'd been around for a number of years before that, um, where he talks about um, uh, a muscle going into, well, he used the term spasm. Um, to try and protect something Um, uh, and we don't we don't really know a lot about this to be honest we think we're starting to understand the right questions but effectively you can get this um, tension within a muscle uh, and that tension is invariably to try and protect something so if you turn an ankle um, as that ankle turns in the muscles on the outside they go into like a quick spasm to try and stop you turning your ankle um, but that lasts for a few seconds, uh, and then and then the ankle isn't turning anymore, so it goes away. Um, there's a theory then that if you consistently load a muscle or a joint or a nerve, then the muscles in relation to those structures, they get tighter and tighter and tighter to try and protect it. Now, we don't really know whether that's purely a local issue or whether that's a neurological issue, because subconsciously somewhere in the brain it tells reflexly. Those muscles to go into spasm. We don't really know, and it it could be a combination of both of those things. Um, uh, So it could be protective, or it could be just the fact that a muscle is fatiguing. Um, uh, And then, so consequently, the muscle kind of shuts down, for want of a better term, which might be more neurological. Um, But ultimately, if the muscle has been tensioned, um, uh, you can call it um, uh, muscle spasm. Uh, overactivity in the muscle, you can call it upregulation. There's lots of different fancy terms, but basically it means it's tight and not working properly. Um, so we need to try and understand, firstly, how we measure that, uh, which is actually quite difficult. Uh, and then secondly, what we're we gonna do about it, what interventions can we do? And one of the things that we spend a lot of time trying to do is trying to understand, well, um, uh, th- this is what we can do as therapists, but actually they're only with us. Once a week or once a month, uh, the, the patients, what can they do? You know, when we had the athletes back in the day, um, you know, they were with us for eight hours a day, sometimes longer, because they were training as well as doing their therapy between the training. So that was a dead easy environment to work in, because you basically got them all day. Um, but uh, your normal folk that don't have the uh, facility, capacity, or ability to do that, what can they do to be helping themselves? Um, so that was quite a big piece of work trying to understand how we can then provide self help interventions to an individual that will give them good outcomes. Uh, And and even now, you know, we've got people um, massaging their own um, hip muscles or back muscles or whatever three or four times a day because we can't do it for them. And and it takes a lot of time for these muscles to start to return to their normal sort of state, whether it's neurological or whether it's um, uh, local muscles. Um, but there, is a, there is a theory that actually the muscle changes its composition. Uh, so instead of it being a muscle that contracts and relax, it's a muscle that is potentially one that becomes more like a ligament and doesn't have the capacity any longer to contract and relax properly. Um, but there are ways that you can reverse that. Um, you can start to reverse that function by um, doing some deep soft tissue massage uh, and particular sort of hold relax type exercises can help reverse that as well. And then you progress them through into their normal sort of strengthening type exercises so there's a lot of questions still unanswered mate to be honest but uh, i think i think that's that's kind of where we are at the moment
1: okay and that and that's uh, beautifully described for the for people who are listening at home that maybe haven't got a background in in this sort of thing what's the difference between a tight muscle that's become Shortened or uh, restricted, or whatever the terminology might be, and a muscle that's in this spasm state. Do we how do how do we know and how do we differentiate?
0: Well, a muscle that's um, just inflexible, tight, still has the capacity to contract and relax. A muscle that would be in this um, tight uh, um, spasm state, overactive state, or regulated state. Um, after a while, the composition of the muscle changes. So, the ability to contract and relax, at least in part of the muscle, is compromised. So, it, it, it stays constantly contracted. It doesn't have the capacity to relax. Um, so, those are the two distinctions, as best we can tell at the moment.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you very much. Because I think that, that's going to be the big thing that we've seen, especially during the clinics. And, uh, you know, we have patient or sorry, we have clients coming in and wanting to sort of work on the performance thing. They're not injured yet, but we're telling them, oh, you've got this muscle that's doing this uh and here's an exercise to do that they still even though we've told them and uh, hopefully got their head around the idea this muscle is active they're still like oh yeah i've been doing my stretches <laughs> so w- when it comes to exercise prescription is it a, is there a different uh prescription based on a tight muscle so that you if, if it's tight you do this and if it's in spasm you'll do this is there a differentiation in the corrective process as well
0: Yeah, there is. found that if a muscle is tight, um, then um, uh, doing stretching, there are lots of different ways of stretching, of course, but stretching a muscle that is just tight, but still has the capacity to contract and relax uh, and function in a normal manner. um, Stretching is okay for someone like that, but for someone who's got this um, um, fibrotic state, if you will, um, uh, in crude terms, the muscle spasm, then um, uh, it does not have the capacity as a normal muscle does. So we need to try and change the state. Uh, and that's where the, the sort of deep soft tissue massage, and that's where the hold relaxed techniques, and that was from the original work by this fellow, Rebo Siskar, he talked about low level isometric contractions or static contractions are optimal at actually trying to reverse that process. So if you try and do the wrong intervention for the different um, muscle state, Um, You're kind of wasting your time, really. Um, uh, It feels good to stretch something, but how many times do you have a tight calf or a tight hamstring or whatever it might be, and you do the normal stretches, variations on a theme, perhaps, but the normal stretches, but the tightness still comes back? If that's the case, then it isn't the muscles tight, inflexible. It's probably the fact that the muscle's changing its composition, and you need to do something about that composition. Fascinating,
1: fascinating. Uh, well, I, I think the the crazy thing when it comes to well, what we've spoken about in the past is the sheer volume of muscles that you've interacted with that might not have actually been in this tight state, uh, that probably more have actually started to change the composition. Have you, has that stance changed or is it still, uh, still firm around the high end?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's out there in everybody. Um, You know, I don't see a lot of patients these days, but um, um, I I help friends out from time to time when they're short in their clinics and so on, which is great fun. I really enjoy it. Um, But, yeah, the the human state hasn't changed in this context. Um, Yeah, it's very prevalent out there. Um, uh, And it's quite interesting. uh, The number of people that come in in a a sort of a standard physio practice where you've got kind of half an hour uh, or osteo or chiro. Um, uh, It is a bit of a band-aid type situation. You know, you're putting... Um, uh, we'll, we'll rub this and try that and do this and, and so on, and that's all. Sometimes that's all you've got time for, and it is not a good place to be. Uh, but it can help some people, of course. But um, ultimately, it's about trying to understand why that problem has occurred. If you've got an arthritic knee, then okay, that's the problem we've got to deal with. But if you've got, for example, a back problem, uh, and you've no idea how it happened or why it happened, it's then about trying to understand. Well, what are the influences on that pain? Um, what about the mechanics of the shoulder, the upper back, the pelvis, the knees, the feet and of those structures which aren't working um, properly, normally for that individual and trying to understand how that dysfunction can increase the pressure on the back. Um, you know, as I said earlier, uh, when I went to college 40 odd years ago, it was knee injury treat knee uh, and the knee was on page 27 and the back was on page 126 and they never got any closer than that. Um, but we now we know that it's quite different to that. So if we can um, look at and try and identify the key restrictions that increase the pressure on the back, for example, and we can help the, um, the patient, the client, manage those problems, then um, it takes the pressure off the back, uh, whatever's causing their pain locally, um, and it gives it a chance to sort itself out. Literally, often, often I find we don't actually need to do anything to the pain. More often than not, all we need to do is show that individual how to manage the things that are loading that painful area, and let the body sort itself out. Um, Not always, but often that can be the case.
1: So, as a very as a a loose uh, ending, questions I could possibly make: Why do we get injured? Then
0: (laughs) there are so many, so many different injury uh, reasons why that happens. often it's because we don't give the body time to adapt um i think uh, well let me just take a step back if I, if I may um so our bodies were designed for want of a better term we can debate that but you know so we've been around for a couple of million years in our homo sapien form probably 70 80 thousand years um, uh, and we've adapted to function um, um, uh, to sit on our haunches uh, to run away from saber-toothed tigers um, uh, to be lazy and sit on the Serengeti and do nothing until such time as we've got to eat and then go and find something to eat, kill it and bring it back and eat it. Um, so we've kind of evolved to be like that. If you look at most of the mammals, that's how they that's how they are. Um, you don't very often see um, lions on the Serengeti doing their exercise and their stretching. Uh, they might yawn a bit, but basically they sit in the shade until they've got to eat, they go and eat, then they come back again um and and if from an evolutionary sense that's probably how we are as well naturally which is why it's so damn difficult to get people to exercise because it's in our dna we're just we're just not designed to 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 exercise per se beyond what we need um so i think that's a fundamental problem we're trying to encourage our bodies to do what they haven't yet evolved to do um and then we ask our bodies we say to us right we're all overweight we've all got type 2 diabetes we've all got to start exercising so we go right okay um, we all have, most of us have these intrinsic biomechanical problems um, where the, the, the hips and the pelvis might not work quite properly. The spine might be a stiff bit stiff here, the, the muscles might not be working properly for various reasons like we've discussed. And then we go out and exercise. So our body is having to compensate for all these mechanical issues every time we go out to run or cycle or go to the gym or whatever. And then we get hurt. And if that happens repeatedly, we think, oh, this exercise is no good for us. We're not suited to exercise. I'm not going to bother anymore. Um, uh, Whereas the reality is our bodies are absolutely suited to exercise, but we are not suited to sitting on our backsides every day, most days, uh, driving or sitting in front of a screen like this. Uh, We're not designed to do this type of work, um, which is one of the reasons why we get repetitive strain problems and so on. So over a period of uh, a very, very short period of probably 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're asking our bodies to do something entirely different for the last 70, 80,000 years that we've evolved to do. So inevitably, we're going to break from time to time. Um, uh, so I think until we recognise that and until we recognise that we have to better um, counter the influences on our body, uh, so we're preparing it better, uh, as you describe, to enable it to do these different types of exercise, um, uh, until we get on top of that, um, we're going to continue to struggle, I think
1: uh The evolutionary thing is such a, an awesome uh, conversation because you know there's so many uh descriptors of what we evolved to do. Like, oh, it's the the paleo. It comes to diet, nutri- and nutritional interventions as much as exercise. Like, oh, that's that's how you were designed. Uh, we didn't. We weren't, as you mentioned, uh, in inverted commas. There, like, we weren't really designed. We've we've had to shape our bodies and musculature is based on our environment. That's why we're all so different, is we're constantly adapting ourselves to what we've got going on around us. And not too long in the future, I think we're going to be very different in the way that we've had to shape our environment to us now. And it kind helps this understanding, because I haven't yet met an injury, niggle, uh, pain, that's been on the same side, at the, both sides at the same time, thanks to the same sport. They've all cropped up, usually on one side, Usually kind of out of the blue, maybe just done a little bit too much that week. Uh, very few impact injuries, obviously, that's a, a giveaway, but very few injuries kind of have a, a definite reason, like, oh, I, that's the stone that caused my discomfort. Or, uh, and, you know, running is a very symmetrical sport. It's probably one of the most symmetrical sports you know, if as a, as a figurehead, but yet still we get injured on one side. Is that that intrinsic piece that you were talking about?
0: I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, you, you look back 70,000, 80,000 years um, and, um, uh, and we were running. You know, endurance was one of our things, wasn't it? We were designed to run a long way. And that's why we could chase these lions and tigers and whatever existed in those years. Um, uh, because they ran out of fuel and we didn't. So, I mean, we are designed to run, absolutely. Um, uh, but unfortunately, we're asking our system to run when it's dysfunctional. Um, because of these activities that we're doing on a day-to-day basis and um, the body is no longer um, uh, it, it has more of these encumbrances that we're having to compensate for so the body does really well at compensating it adapts really well to a point you know if you have one or two biomechanical problems you might have a flat foot you might have a knock knee whatever it might be then the body usually does okay it's when you got four or five of them that the body tends to struggle um, so uh, if you've got a flat foot or knock knee, your pelvis is not working properly. You've got a stiff muscle in your back, and so on. And then um, you decide you want to start to run. Then yeah, you'll get problems absolutely. Um, so it's about identifying who are mechanically suited to running. We're probably all mechanically suited, but in terms of the intrinsic mechanics uh, and those that aren't, well, let's sort them out. Let's do some exercise. Let's prepare our bodies in an appropriate way, and then we can start doing. The extrinsic stuff we can start doing the running and the cycling or whatever it is um, uh, we're all suited to doing exercise we've just got to prepare ourselves better i
1: think fantastic so when it comes to most runners, the uh, questions we get asked a lot is uh, I've got really tight hamstrings, like what can I do to make it more what do I do to make it more flexible? Um, should I be doing activities of more of a low grade stretchy kind of nature like yoga Pilates, etc, or should I be doing more strength work and trying to get myself stronger and on the side of that should we be trying to make runners more flexible where's the bell-shaped curve to it if there is one uh
0: there you go asking two questions again yeah. the,
1: brain <laughs> <frog>. <laughs> the brain brain frog <laughs>
0: let's ask the last one for okay. the last one first because that's the one i remember <laughs> um, <laughs> so um uh, When we we run, um, of course, we use our muscles. um, But what we're particularly interested in is um, how efficiently we can use them. Uh, The the more we use our muscles, the more energy we expend. Um, So uh, when we do um, dynamic, higher velocity movements like running, uh, we tend to run on our tendons. Um, uh, We don't really want to be uh, engaging our muscles overly. It wants to be more of a tendon type thing. uh, which means that we can do it more, we can go further, we can run further, and so on. Uh, so, but we need to have a certain tension within our muscles to enable us to do that. If we have really flexible long muscles, um, it's harder to generate tension through them uh, and to run on the tendons, your Achilles tendons and your patella tendons, um, uh, and it becomes less less reflex, so to speak. Um, uh, so a, a relative, you can't say a shorter muscle is a better muscle for running. But certainly a longer muscle is more difficult. Um, so you want those, you don't want muscles to be too flexible. You want them to be flexible enough. Um, and when you actually break down distance running, the flexibility in your hamstring, the flexibility required in your hamstrings isn't actually that great. You probably only need to, uh, with a straight knee, lift your leg up about 45 degrees, maybe a little bit more, depending on how fast you run. Um, so any tightness feeling in the hamstring, as long as you can lift your leg more than 45 degrees isn't the hamstring being tight? It's more often than not, the hamstring is um, um, feeling tight or going tight or going into like an overactivity or a protective spasm for another reason. Um, Either it's fatiguing, and they are indeed weak, um, or it's because, for example, it's trying to protect your sciatic nerve, which runs down the back of the leg. If your sciatic nerve is irritated or tensioned, as we describe it, um, then the muscles through which it passes they tend to go tight to try and protect it. Uh, Nerves are viscoelastic, which means that they don't like stretching at high speeds, um, but they'll stretch at low speeds really well. Um, And if that's the case, then um, uh, when you're running at a lower speed, uh, they will cope better, but the quicker speed you run, the less they cope, and therefore the tighter the muscles become, because they're trying to protect those nerves. So we're often, not always, but often, um, if you've got a tight hamstring and you're stretching it until the cows come home and it isn't improving, then chances are your hamstrings aren't tight, they're overactive because they're trying to protect something like potentially a sciatic nerve. If your sciatic nerve is a bit stiff, then sometimes that can be the cause. Um, uh, Sometimes if your pelvis isn't working properly, that can cause the hamstring to go into spasm. Um, if your back isn't moving properly and you've got tension in the muscles either side of your spine, that can also make the hamstrings tight. Um, uh, you could even argue that there is uh, there are muscles on the back of your shoulder blades and your upper back uh, uh, joints. If they are tight, it can cause the hamstrings to become tight. We are an integrated system. Everything one way or another is attached to everything else. Um, so uh, probably the last place we'd want to look if you've got tight hamstrings are in fact the hamstrings. There's a
1: sound bite for you. <laughs> well, and, and that kind of half ans- answers inadvertently the first question as well, which is uh, would we want someone to improve their flexibility? And the answer is we don't know because we don't know what speed they're running at, what kind of distance they're looking at tackling during that speed and their own intrinsic factors that could be contributing to that hamstring being tight in the first place.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think the answer to the question um how flexible do people need to be, they need to be flexible enough. Um <laughs> depending on their activity and their individual mechanics. Um but uh, yeah I think it's a it's a nice example for the uh, for the distance runner. Um uh, you know, when we used to video people and we used to look at the angles and so on. Um uh, and again you can do that in quite a sophisticated way now. You don't usually have to um um, um flex the hip. Lift, lift the leg up as it were with the knee straight more than about 45-50 degrees so as long as you've got that, your muscles aren't tight, if they feel tight it's because they're trying to protect something else
1: There's a really nice piece of work done by uh, Professor Andrew Jones back when he was doing his PhD studies and he was looking at the idea of running economy and how it was being influenced by uh, more ex- in well, I suppose intrinsic factors and one of the things he was looking at was hamstring length and he was a uh, still is, I think, a half marathon record holder for the juniors, and all of his friends were elite athletes, and he measured them, and the ones that had the more passive tension through the hamstrings actually were the ones running, running the fastest.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think it was Mel Siff that talked about sprinters, particularly sprinters, but all runners. They run on the springs. Um, um, uh, McGill talked about that as well. Um, uh, it's not a case of the body subconsciously or consciously. Contracting the muscle to push you forward—it's a case of generating tension through the muscle sufficiently that there's stability, uh, and then the tension within the springs or the tendons—that's what propels you forward, rather than strong
1: muscles. Amazing. Well, I, I, thank you so much for uh, this uh, enlightening side of what we kind of wanting to progress on. I know there's—we're going to try and do a part two. In some ways, it may be even like a physical workshop um, or a virtual workshop for thing. But is there is there anything that you would like to one piece of advice for runners out there that are either just getting into it or looking at tackling personal best or even representing our country? What's the piece of advice that you would give them to make sure that they are preventing risk?
0: Yeah, prepare properly. Find out what your individual personalized restrictions are. We all have it. We all have them. Um, even the elite, especially the elite athletes, um, they compensate for their problems better than we do, to a point, and then they break. Um, but um, identify what your individual problems are in terms of the mechanics. Um, that doesn't mean to say, extrinsically, you've got to change anything. Um, uh, don't think that you've got to go and get videos, if you are doing this with your arm, you've got to change it. Not at all. You only change things extrinsically if you have problems. Um, if you have pain or if you have a particular problem with a, with a technique that has to be done in a particular way for your sport. But intrinsically, you can very easily identify uh, whether your pelvis has the capacity to function how it was intended. Um, and likewise for the uh, muscles in your legs, the, the, the nerves down the back of your legs, your spine and so on. It's not difficult to identify whether it has the capacity to move properly normally for you as an individual. Um, and <clears throat> once it has the capacity to do that, then extrinsically, you can kind of run how you like. Um, uh, there are some brilliant running coaches out there. and They'll talk to you about how you need to change your technique uh, based on me- extrinsic mechanical efficiency. That's all good. Uh, but don't think about trying to change the way you run until you understand why you run that way. Uh, and then once you deal with that, then you've got an opportunity to potentially change an extrinsic technique to be more efficient whatever you do don't try and change your extrinsic technique how you run until you know why you run that way and try and manage that first otherwise it's kind of a problem waiting to happen
1: brilliant well thank you very much how can people reach out to you or how can people see what you're up to next
0: um i try and keep very quiet these days <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so i've got a business called bright spark and we um uh, we consult to um, a number of organizations, teams and so on. Um, but also we design products, we're quite interested in that. Uh, and, and and more information about what we get up to is on our website, brycepark.com.
1: Brilliant, thank you very much, Martin. Really appreciate your time. And thank you for all your work over the years. I think when you started, the Dead Sea was just sick. Uh, but <laughs> I think... <laughs> It feels like that, i got to <laughs> say. So that's one of my granddad's, mate. as his as saying. Uh, but really appreciate your efforts and your continual hard work into this area. Thank you.
0: It's a pleasure, mate. Thanks for taking the time to invite me over. I enjoyed it. It's good. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed it as well.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for listening in guys really appreciate you taking your time to listen to these podcasts and uh, email us in and give us your comments barton's a massive influence on myself and my career as i mentioned in the beginning So i was really excited to share his insights knowledge uh, and personality with you as well let us know what you learned if anything and also what you might want to listen to in the future look forward to seeing you soon Thank you so much for joining us on that slightly different styled Run Talk podcast that literally was running and talking at the same time. The quality of the audio obviously represents that as well. It was recorded live and uh, therefore, so signal and things were dropping out. But hopefully, we re- brought it back in and uh, hopefully, you enjoyed it nonetheless. Please let us know what you thought, any questions, comments, or if you think of someone else you would like to hear on the Run Talks, please let us know. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you again really soon.